as this series on evangelism continues, I was thinking this week again of a compelling scene in a 1998 movie by the name of Simon Birch, and it echoes in my mind. It is compelling because it is an example of the deep inward struggle that plagues almost everyone that you and I meet. In fact, It may hauntingly depict some of our own need, your own need, for spiritual answers. The young boy in the scene that we're going to look at this morning is named Simon. Simon's life is a struggle. He's wrestled with the weight of physical, emotional, and relational burdens since his birth. His parents don't care about him. His peers look down on him. And his church is annoyed by him. He has only one true friend in the world, a boy named Joe, who has taken the time to build a deep mutual friendship with him. Now, Simon's personality quirks and aggravating antics are surpassed not only by his deep-seated need to be understood and accepted by the world around him, but also to truly understand his purpose and place in this world, what his destiny is. He longs for someone to affirm his belief that his life has meaning. I can't help but to imagine how many Simon Burgess there are, even in my own circle of acquaintances, possibly yours, who hunger for the same affirmation. How many hearts ache for someone to tell them that they have meaning and purpose in this life? That God has created them and destined them for something unique, something special, something significant. That they matter. That they are more than just barely keeping their head above water for the sole purpose of stringing days and weeks and years together only to end up growing old, tired, sick, and forgotten. How many Simon Birches are there in your life, who simply want to be told, who simply need to be told that not only do they matter to God, but that they matter to you. Maybe the person seated next to you this morning needs that. Maybe in the deepest part of their soul, they're whispering the words of Simon. I want to know that there's a reason for things. And I want you to tell me that God has a plan for me. A plan for all of us. Please. Are you prepared to be the one God uses to tell them? Could you answer? Yes, he does have a plan. And it's the most wonderful truth you'll ever experience in your life. Would you mind if I took the time to explain it to you? But far too many Christians never get to the point of being asked that question. You know why? Because they fear that they will not be able to follow through with an answer like the pastor in the movie clip, which is unconscionable. What a tragic scene that is. Would you take a moment, just 
to pray with me before we go any further, to ask that God would empower us and equip us to never leave the honest question of a sincere seeker of truth to go unanswered by us. Let's just pray together. Gracious Father, so many of us feel inadequate to respond to the deep spiritual questions of our friends and neighbors who are far from you. So we tragically avoid situations in which we will be asked to respond. Lord, forgive us for being so selfish and spiritually immature. God, give us confidence in the hope that we have received. Make us ready, willing and able to tell the story of how much you desire a deep and enduring love relationship with us. So much so that you went to the ultimate extreme to make it happen. You laid it all on the line. And give us, Father, a passion for you that is so strong, so prevailing, so ignited that it cannot be contained. Let us open our hearts and see with our minds and then go to the streets and tell every soul that you bring to us that there is a plan, a plan you have designed to give people hope. Teach us, Lord, for we are eagerly listening today. For Jesus' sake, amen. So in the last few sessions, we talked about how infectious our faith can be when we use our God-given styles of communication. And we've talked about different ways to build relationships and introducing spiritual topics into our conversations with people. And finally, we discovered how with a little preparation we can effectively share in everyday language, how Christ has affected our lives. But the high point of this series happens today. This may be the most important message in the entire series. We've talked about the scriptures that urge us to always be ready to make a defense and give an account of the hope that is in us, to make the most of every opportunity that God brings to us and to know how we should speak to every person. And we are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But friends, it all comes to naught if at the precise moment when someone asks us the question of what it is that makes Christianity so different from every other religion in the world or how Jesus relates to our personal needs that we don't have an answer for them. If when they ask, we can't tell them as clearly as possible, the gospel of Jesus. What people do with that gospel is between them and God. No question about it. But it is our responsibility to make it as understandable and as clear to them as humanly possible. And to do that, you and I need two things. Number one, we need a clear understanding of the gospel ourselves. Okay, And number two, we need a way to make it understandable to others. That's my twofold goal today. And I want to show you what the scriptural gospel is. Because I think a lot of people are confused about that. And then show you the simple, straightforward way to present it. Because the strength of the gospel lies in the simplicity of its message. 
when it's all stripped to the core, what, what is the bottom line message that causes a person to cross over the line of non-belief to being a follower of Christ? Have you thought about that? Do you have a clean grasp of what the gospel is? If you don't, you will never be able to communicate it effectively. So let's take a look at what the Bible says is crucial to understanding or to sharing the gospel message. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you would. We're going to look at a few verses here in the first eight verses. Verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. Okay? You want to know what the gospel is? Here it is. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Let's just stop right there. The first thing I got to say is that if you're going to have a clear understanding of the gospel yourself and you're going to figure out a way to clearly present it to someone else is the gospel first must be powerful in your life. Pretty basic, right? How many people forget that? It must be powerful in your life. The first two verses here. Now, I don't want to take a lot of time with the nitty-gritty details of all these verses here, but I do want to highlight the essential elements according to the Bible. First of all, this gospel must be passionately proclaimed. Verse 1, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. And then in verse 3, for I delivered to you. Paul made it known. Paul says, I make known the gospel which I preached, for I have delivered it to you. Salvation is not going to happen if you don't communicate it to people. That's just basic, right? Secondly, it must be personally received. It must be personally received. Again, verse 1, I make known to you the gospel, brethren, which I preached to you, which also you received. Verse 2, by which also you are saved. The gospel was personal to Paul. He personally received it himself. He wasn't just passing on facts that he had learned from a book or heard in a conversation. He personally experienced the truth of it in his own life. Paul had to have received it first, okay, in order for this message to be effective and received by others. You cannot impart what you do not possess. Thirdly, we ought to be powerfully secure in it. Verse 1 again. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, what's it say? In which also you stand. Not waver. Stand. 
Not perfect, but making progress. Ask yourself the questions. Am I secure in my faith? Is this something I'm standing firm in, enduring in, and growing in? Have I come to terms with the fact that I can never go back to the other side? Have you settled that? Because the Israelites didn't, hadn't, right? They were always wanting to go back to Egypt, right? Fourthly, it's practically confirmed. Again, verse 2, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. This gospel has the power to personally save us. It says it right there in verse 2. And the proof of that is our changed life. Amen? Our perseverance to the end. Not that we could ever lose our salvation, mind you, once we have it, but that if we really possess it, it will possess us. We will hold fast to the truth of the gospel until the day we die, no matter what comes down the pike, because the gospel is unshakable. We are determined to live by it. It is our anchor, the anchor of our souls, and our perseverance in it is the confirmation, the Bible says, that we have truly been saved by it. So the gospel not only must be powerful in our lives, but here, second big thing here is the gospel must be a priority in our minds. It's got to be priority in your mind. Verse 3, for I deliver to you, what's it say? As of first importance. To Paul, communicating the truth about who Jesus is and what he did for us was of paramount importance. Nothing else came close in his life. Luke records Paul's own testimony to the extreme importance of the gospel in his life. If you turn to the book of Acts in chapter 20, beginning in verse 18, you'll see some of this. Verse 18, when they had come to them, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility. And with tears and trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink away from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. You hear what Paul's saying? Friends, if we're ever going to become contagious Christians, you and I have to decide whether the gospel is going to take priority in our lives or will something else take precedence? It's not necessarily a matter of what you do every single minute of the day. Rather, it's a matter of how you approach every single aspect of your life. Everything must be filtered through the gospel message. Being passionate about the gospel doesn't necessarily mean resigning from your job and becoming an evangelist. It does mean that you resign yourself to doing your job with the heart of one who seeks to communicate the grace of Christ in whatever you do. 
The gospel must be powerful in your life, a priority in your mind. And here's the main course of what I want to tell you today. The gospel can be profoundly simple in your presentation. Profoundly simple in your presentation. Again, back in 1 Corinthians. How simple was this? In verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that, notice it here, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. See, there's not a whole lot of decoration here in what Paul's presenting, is there? Paul gives us the straight scoop. If you want to know the basic elements of the gospel message, they're right here in these verses 3 through 8. Christ died for our sins. He was buried, which was proof of his death. He was raised on the third day, all according to what was prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. And he appeared. He appeared to many. It's mentioned four times, which was proof of his resurrection. You know what I find interesting? Most people, when they present the gospel, they don't say anything about his appearances. Right? And yet, Paul mentions it four times here. Profoundly simple. With those basic elements, we can communicate the life-changing message of truth of the gospel creatively and effectively. How, you might say? Well, let me give you four primary aspects of what is revealed here in Paul's kerygma, or that, that's a theological term, basically, which means the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. This is what was included in Paul's gospel. At its core, this is what the gospel reveals. Now, this is all much more detail than you're going to have to present to people. But what I'm giving it to you now for is so you will understand in your mind, accomplishing the first goal that I said, right? You need to understand clearly what the gospel is. So you need to present, number one, who God is. Between the lines of Paul's statement, Christ died for our sins here, is an inexhaustible supply of food for thought on the character of God. If you haven't yet discovered it, the theology of God's sovereign character is an extremely deep well. Yes? You think? Thomas Aquinas, regarded as one of the greatest philosophers and theologians of the medieval church, spent his entire life studying and writing on the subject of knowing God through his revelation. In other words, the natural revelation. Toward the end of his life, while working on his voluminous Summa Theologica, like 38 volumes, he closed the book, he put down his pen, and he uttered to his secretary these profound words, quote, Reginald, I can do no more. Such things have been revealed to me that all I have written seems as straw. Unquote. When I say the gospel is simple to present, trust me, I am not saying the gospel is simple. Not when a guy like this, who spends his whole life writing a theological treatise, ends it by saying, everything I've written is like straw. Because the more we discover about the God of the universe, the more we realize how little we know. As we attempt to explain to people the character of the God we believe in, 
We are quickly intimidated by the task. There are, however, three characteristics that are especially relevant to every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. And this is very simple to understand and to proclaim to people. Number one, he's a loving God. He's a loving God. First John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 say, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. It always starts with that. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Starts with love. This is an aspect of God's character that most people want to believe and know about. The problem is, this is where most people quit. They want to hear about a loving God who out of his compassion created us and wants to have a relationship with us, a God who is patient with us. Incidentally, that's what the Bible reveals about who God is, but it doesn't end there, does it? God is not limited to being loving, but beyond that, God is a holy God. By holy, the Bible means absolute perfection, totally other, purity, sinlessness. He is separated and apart from everything that is corrupt, perverse, or impure. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, anything that's impure is in stark contrast to the holiness of God. Is that right? I like, I like it to an incident I experienced during the time that I was attending Bible college and I worked part-time at Motor Vehicle Department. Some interior renovations were being done, which was creating this ultra-fine dust particles, severely lowering the purity of the air that we were all breathing. Under normal room lighting, you couldn't see that dust at all. It was all from the drywall sanding. But when the rays of light from the setting sun shone through the windows of that lobby, the polluted air became glaringly visible. Now that's a perfect example of God's holiness and how it affects us. Under normal visibility, most people's lives look pretty good. Right? On the outside. But when the purity of God's character and the penetrating brightness of God's holiness shines on our actions, our private thoughts, and our sinful intentions, the imperfections become glaringly visible and they look pretty nasty, don't they? Well, that incident in a motor vehicle department actually opened a door leading to a discussion on the harmful effects of our hidden sinfulness. But that brings up a third basic truth of who God is. He's a loving God, and he's a holy God, and he's a just God. In other words, we can't simply just ignore those particles. We just can't close our eyes. We're breathing those particles in in that room, right? Same thing with sin. He can't ignore the sins that we've committed. He has to deal with it. Justice must be served. Sin must be punished. Lawbreakers must 
pay. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 says, God is just, and he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Colossians 3, verse 25 says, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. God is a perfect judge who will one day bring every single human act to justice and it will be dispensed fairly across the board to everyone who has ever or will ever live. Is that right? Now beyond telling people who God is, we also need to unveil a second necessary element of the gospel and that is who we are. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3 says that Christ died for our sins. People have to own up to the fact that we are lawbreakers who have rebelled against God. It's a very simple story involving three very disturbing realities. Number one, we were created good but became sinful, right? Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Secondly, we deserve death, both physical and spiritual. Romans 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thirdly, we are spiritually helpless and morally bankrupt to be able to do one single thing about it on our own. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says, It is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That's a pretty bleak picture, isn't it? The fact is, folks, is we've rebelled. We stomped our feet into... That woke you up. We've stomped our feet and turned our backs on God and became sinful. Happened all the way back in Genesis. And nothing's changed. God's holiness exposes us for who we truly are, incurable sinners in desperate need of help. Because God's justice, the sentence of death was pronounced on us, and to top it all off, we're absolutely helpless in ourselves to do anything to change the situation, to counteract the sentence. God demands perfection, and we, because of sin, became imperfect. People don't like to hear that. You know what it's like? I've said this before. It's like putting one simple drop of red paint in a gallon of pure white. No matter how much more white paint you add to that pail, add another five gallons, add another hundred gallons, mix it all up, shake it all up, open the cover, what do you see? You see white. You don't see that little red drop, do you? But it's still there, isn't it? No matter how white it may look to your eye, it's still impure and it can never, ever be classified as pure white again, can it? Never. You can't remove it. In order for that to happen, every single trace of red paint that has been thoroughly ingrained in the mix has to somehow be removed. How impossible is that? It's humanly impossible. 
Spiritually, the same thing is true, except we're talking a lot more than one tiny drop of paint, folks. We're talking about sin that has been thoroughly ingrained in our souls from the day we were born, from the day we were conceived in our mother's womb, says Psalm 32. Theologically, you know what that's referred to as? The doctrine of, anybody know? Depravity. It's the doctrine of depravity, which doesn't necessarily mean that everything that we do is completely wrong and we never, ever do anything right. But you know what the doctrine of depravity says? It says that everything that we do has a tint to it. It's got a little drop of red paint in it. No matter how white and good it looks, there's something corrupt there because we're corrupt. The white paint of our souls has been compromised by a touch of the red paint of sin. We all fall far short of God's perfection. You know what we need? We need a miracle. We need a miracle. Someone who can remove the deeply saturated stain of sin in our lives. If people don't get that, folks, if people don't get that, if they don't understand their desperate need, the gospel will not be relevant to them. It won't be. You see, people need to see themselves as lost before they can see their need of someone to find them. That's where the good news comes in. Once people realize who God is and who they are in relationship to him, separated from him, then it's possible for them to see the third big thing, who Christ is and what he's done. Christ is the miracle everyone needs. He's the only one who can remove that little stain of red. He can provide the opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation between God and us. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus is the only one with the unique ability to solve our eternal dilemma. How did he solve it? Well, that's what you need to know. You need to know about Jesus. He was both God and man. John chapter 1, verse 1 and then verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God and man. John chapter 8, verse 24. Jesus himself said to the people, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. It is vital that people understand who Jesus is. He's not just some philosopher that's come down the pike that says good things. He's not some created being that comes onto the scene and lived his life to the highest level of human potential. That's not who Christ is. Christ was fully God. Christ was fully man. 
And it is vital for people to understand that. He's not only the creator of the universe, but he also became a man like you and me. And he was the only man capable of living a perfect life which was acceptable to God the Father. He was God's perfect man, and he was man's perfect God. As Almighty God, he had the power and the authority to provide a perfect plan for salvation. At the same time, as a man, he took upon himself the punishment for sin that you and I deserved. So people need to know that Jesus died as our substitute. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, this is the central message of the gospel. Christ died in our place. He died instead of us. He canceled out the debt we owed by paying a price that we could never have afforded to pay. He suffered the death penalty in our place, which demonstrated the extreme love of God has that he has for us, all the while upholding his holiness and ultimately satisfying the justice he demands. What a beautiful thing, huh? But then the question is always raised, why did a price have to be paid? Why couldn't God just say, well, I just forgive it. Forgive it and forget it. Because he's God, right? Ah, here's, here's an illustration for you, as weak as it may be. It's a car illustration. Your neighbor runs into it, your car, smashes it. You can forgive your neighbor and forget the deed, can't you? But who's going to pay for the damage? You're going to be left holding that bill. You see, our sins have done damage to the relationship that we had with God. Someone had to pay for it. And since we couldn't, he did. Even though he can forgive and forget our sins, he's still left holding the bill. What's the bill? The wages of sin is death. Big bill. Someone had to pay the price. And that someone was Jesus. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. You were dead because of your sins. You were dead because of your sins. That's what people need to understand. Spiritually, you're dead if you don't have Christ's forgiveness. You're dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave us all of our sins. He canceled the record of the charges that were against us and took it out of the way. How? By nailing it to the cross. Why did Christ have to die? He was innocent after all. What kind of justice is that? That's why the identity of Christ is so extremely important. Because he himself was the God we sinned against. His death illustrates the phenomenal love he has for us and the grace that he has showered upon us. And so he did it to offer us an incredible gift. Ephesians chapter 2 Verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. And it's not the result of works, so that you can't boast about it. 
You know, it's a gift too good to be true and too great to be missed. The trade-off is unimaginable. His forgiveness for our guilt. His righteousness for our sin. His life for our death sentence. Why would he do that? We certainly didn't deserve it. Simply put, you know why he did it? He did it because it's God's nature to save. It's his nature to love. It's his nature to seek and to save that which was lost. And he did it because you and I were priceless to him. Priceless to him. Let me bring it home in tangible terms again. For those of you that are new, you might not have seen this before. Others of you have. But here's another illustration that you can use with somebody. Okay? Here's a nice, crisp $20 bill. Would someone like that? Suppose I said, you could have this $20 bill. You want it? Nobody wants a $20 bill. (laughs) Do you want it? How many of you want it? I can't believe this. You guys are way too rich. Everybody wants a crisp $20 bill. Nobody wants to come up here and get it though, right? Suppose I did this to it. Still want it? Oh, yeah. Suppose I did this to it. Still want it? Of course you want it. Why do you want it? Because the value has not changed, right? It's been wrinkled, it's been crumpled, it's been stepped upon and ground into the earth. But guess what? It's still worth 20 bucks. You know what the Bible says? That God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You've been beat up, you've been stomped on, you've been ground into the dirt all of your life. Sin has done that to you. Sin has done it to me. But you know what? We're valuable to God. And God wanted you. He wants you. He wanted me. That's why he died on the cross for you. Because he demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were even yet sinners, Christ died for us. And even though we've been marred and wrinkled and kicked around by sin, our value has not changed. We're not worthy, but we are of precious worth to God. The debt you and I owed was absolutely enormous. The cost was absolutely outrageous. And the benefit, oh, it's tremendous. Eternal life. That's the benefit. The whole package is literally just a gift waiting for people to open. Which brings us to the fourth and final aspect of the gospel. What we must do. Right? What we must do. Every person who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to a crossroads of decision. We can know all about the first three points, who God is and what he's done. But in the midst of all that knowledge, we can still be on spiritual death row. We must respond to the gospel. It's that 18 inches principle, right? 
A lot of people miss heaven by a mere 18 inches. That's the approximate distance of your head to your heart. It's not enough to know about the gift intellectually. You need to receive it personally in your heart. That's where faith comes in. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. But listen to Jesus' Sober warning, and it's a very sober warning. In Matthew chapter 7, in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a heavy-duty scripture, isn't it? It scares me to death. The fact of the matter is these people knew about Christ, but they did not have a personal heart relationship with Christ. And at the end of it, Jesus said, I never knew you. You knew about me. You even did some things and said they were in my name. But you didn't know me and I didn't know you. See, people must possess an intimate personal relationship of trust with Jesus Christ. They must ask Christ to be their Savior and Lord, and the result will be a life that is transformed by the Holy Spirit, which results not only in a change of mind, but a change of heart. But beyond that, it results in a change of behavior. The book of Acts says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What does it say in Luke chapter 2, the birth announcement? For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If you declare with your mouth, Romans says, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Romans 14, for to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has come. You know what the problem with the people in Matthew 7 were? They said with their mouth that Jesus was Lord, but their life didn't change. And so therefore, it proved that Jesus wasn't their Lord. That's what the gospel is. That's what you and I need to understand ourselves in order to effectively communicate it to others. If, you're, if you've got some questions about anything that we just went over, we need to talk. That's first. But secondly, if you don't understand what we just went over as the basic gospel message, you're never going to be able to communicate it to somebody. You don't have to give them all that detail but you need to know the basics, right? Give them the basics. But you can't give them the basics if you don't know the details. Because that's what the gospel is. But beyond our understanding, there must be some undertaking. And we must be able to present it to people when they're ready to hear it. And we ought to be able to present it in such a way that it's simple and easy and biblically accurate. 
If the strength of the gospel lies in the simplicity of its message, then the simpler we can make it, the more powerful the impact, right? I watched a movie the other night on YouTube. I would highly recommend you watch it. It's called American Gospel in Christ Alone. It's basically just an hour-long teaser of the greater movie, which is two hours long. My goodness, that was, a, it was an eye-opening, eye-opening movie about how the American gospel has changed subtly so much that we don't even, I mean, it's so subtle that we don't even recognize now. Most preaching now is all about self-help. Dare to be a Daniel. You can be a David. All these things, they all sound so good. But where's Jesus? That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you need to have Jesus and then Jesus will do something with you that might be similar to Daniel and David. You're going to be you. But you need Jesus to become the best you there is, right? None of this, you can become the best you there is, but leave Jesus out of the picture. Great movie, eye-opening movie. And in that movie... A lot of intellectuals actually are interviewed as well as all kinds of people. But it's interesting to me and one of these illustrations that I've used before for telling people the gospel, so simple because actually years ago I, I did a presentation of this and I said, you know, the one guy that immediately comes to mind when we talk about simplifying things that impacted the lives of almost everybody in this room, made a career out of making deep things simple was who? Mr. Rogers, right? And so I did this illustration one time of this here at the church, and I had somebody playing the Mr. Rogers theme on a piano, and I put on a cardigan and changed my shoes and had some glasses, and I played Mr. Rogers presenting the gospel. And somebody came up to me afterwards, a good friend of mine, and said, you know, I didn't like that. Why? Because you dumbed it down. I disagreed with him. The simpler, the better. Profundity is found in simplicity. So, in this movie, some of these intellectuals were using the same illustration. It's the whole idea of do versus done, right? You want to know the difference between religion and Christianity? Religion is kind of spelled D-O, what you do. Consists of the things people do to try to gain God's favor. But the problem is, you can never know when you've done enough. It's like being a salesman who knows he must meet a quota, but never being told what that quota is. It's a crapshoot, really. You can never be sure that you've actually done enough. Worse yet, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, which I just quoted, that we can never do enough, that we're always falling short of the glory of God, right? But thankfully, Christianity is spelled differently. It's spelled D-O-N-E. Which means that what we can never do for ourselves, Christ has already done for us to pay the penalty we owed for the wrongs that we've done. To become a real Christian is to humbly receive God's gift of forgiveness and to commit to following his lordship. When we do that, he adopts us into his family and begins to change us from the inside out. And many people go on from there and think that it reverts back to D.O. It doesn't. It still depends on what Christ has done. We may do all of these things, of course, 
But that's just the result of Christ living in and through us, amen? We don't earn righteousness. But you know, what you have in your bulletins there is another simple and accurate way to illustrate the gospel to people. This is that whole bridge to life thing. And you know, some people think it's way too simplistic. People might say, well, you know, I, I, I bristle at the fact that the, that the gospel, the profound gospel of Jesus Christ can be, can be relegated to uh, a stick man drawing on the back of a napkin. Well, they're right in a sense. This is just a tool, my friends. It's a tool. And some people are visual learners. And so, you know, you may think it's over, overly simplistic, but I have used this on, on napkins in restaurants over coffee, at the dining room table with people, in the car, on a trip with somebody, and I've seen people come to Christ. But it's not because of the, the illustration. It's because God was working in their heart already and they were ready to receive Christ. And this was just a way to show what the next step was. Matter of fact, I used it this week with a gentleman in my office. That guy was ready. The Holy Spirit was already working in his life prior to that. It just took a little, few little things here and there and say, this is what you need to do. He was running for the goal line. Crossing the line into faith. But the Holy Spirit had already been working on it. It's called this bridge to life and been used by so many ministries and individuals for years. It's one of my favorite tools because it's so versatile. You can change it up. You can do a whole bunch of different things with it. And I've included that version of it. That comes from the Billy Graham Association. But, you know, I can step you through it really quickly here. Basically, it starts out by saying, you know, we matter to God. We matter to God. He made us and he wants to have us to have a relationship with him. And so we begin to write us on one side, God on the other, and the end being death from our trying to reach God. If we don't have a relationship with God, we're going to all end up with the wages of sin, which is death. And then I explained to them that we rebelled against God, both actively and passively. We've all disobeyed him, and our sins have made this separation between us and God and broken off the relationship. Now, to varying degrees, most of us are aware of that distance, and we try all kinds of things to try to get back to God. We try good works, and we try philosophy, and we try morality, and we try religion. We try all of these things, but the Bible makes it very clear that none of these things, none of them can earn us God's forgiveness or reestablish our relationship with him. So then you draw a couple of arrows and you show over the cliff, you know, this is what's happening if you try to, to span that gap with all of these worldly things. It's not going to happen. You're going to fall short. You're going to end up in the same place you started with, a destiny of death. And then I might add that that penalty that we owed ends up in a place that you don't want to even talk about that Jesus spent a lot of time talking about in hell. That's another thing that we don't talk about in church today. But you can talk about death because everybody knows that. Well, God provided a bridge over which we can go, find his forgiveness, and restore our relationship for him. And that only way was the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? And that, I conclude, basically is a picture of the central message of the Bible and what God wants each of us to understand. And it's not just enough for us to know about this or agree with it. We've got to actually 
act upon it. And so God wants to move us from that left side over to the right side. So the question is, where are you? You ask people that question. Where do you think you are on this timeline? Are you on the left side or on you, are, are you on the right side, on God's side? And then the way you actually get there is to cross over the line of faith by trusting and believing in Christ. And so I'll ask somebody if it makes sense to them, if there's any part that they'd like to discuss. And finally, I ask the person where they seem that they are. And finally, I will ask them, is there any reason why you would not want to cross from where you are right now, if they say they're on the left, over to a relationship with Christ and have eternal life? And of course, all in this process, we're looking at some scriptures. Sometimes they say, no, I'm not ready yet. Well, that's fine. We can talk further. Sometimes they say, yes, I am ready. What do I need to do? Then you need to tell them what to do. Do you know how to lead somebody across the line? That's what we're going to talk about next week. But basically, they need to admit who they are. Sinners in need of salvation. They need to believe that this sacrifice that Christ offered on the cross was enough to make our relationship with God right again. And then you need to commit to it and cross the line of faith. And then I'll ask them to pray. It's amazing to me that people that have never prayed a day in their life will pray words to this prayer that's so beautiful and organic and natural. And you can tell that the Holy Spirit is working in their life because they say all the words that the scripture talks about, a person needs to say to show that they have faith in Christ. It's just a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. You know, people need to hear the gospel. Do you know how to share it with them? It's that simple and it's that deep. You and I need to tell them straight up and personal. And a man by the name of Ken Taylor wrote these words. He said, a missionary friend of mine serves in a restricted access country. For many years, the government of this country has taught the people that there is no God. My friend had the opportunity to interact on a regular basis with a non-believer of that country who was a highly educated professional. And after developing a friendship with the professional, my friend had the opportunity to share the gospel story with him. He said, my friend was taken aback by the man's response. This is what the man responded, and it's very similar to what I told you my friend Steve talked about at his salvation. He said, what you have told me cannot be true. Because if it were, it is such good news that someone would surely have told it to me by now. So what are you waiting for? Tell somebody about it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for providing us the way of escape. The way of deliverance. The way of salvation. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's so many things that have gone unsaid today, even though we've said a lot of things. But your Bible is full of examples and illustrations and lessons and 
practical applications that we can use to show someone the love of Jesus, their need of Jesus. I ask you, Lord God, by your Holy Spirit, that you would make us alert and aware of the opportunities around us this week. And now, we have something, that, Lord, that we can use to take those opportunities. Expand our vision and help us to develop even more ways of sharing our faith with you. There's so many different ways, and they are all individually tied to the circumstances that we find ourselves in. But the gospel message is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It never changes. So help us to be well-versed in our understanding that we may clearly and simply present the truth to people. For I ask it in Christ's holy and precious name and for the sake of your kingdom. Amen.